Real quick, I gotta let you in on a testing secret. With regulations and breaches on the rise, production data is no longer safe or legal for developers to use. And creating test data in-house is a complex chore that eats away valuable time. That's where Tonic comes in. They make it possible to create a true mirror of production by safely and realistically mimicking production data. So you can work on real product and steer clear of surprises at release time. Learn more at tonic.ai slash code story. I am very partial and completely biased to our e-com product, which is really the extension of Riderly in the e-commerce sector. The team did an outstanding job architecting for the accommodation of, of multiple streams of data that brands and businesses all deal with on a day-to-day basis, but they operate in, in, in such a siloed manner. And to be able to then take some natural language processing capabilities and apply it to these high-frequency and real-time data sources to then automate a lot of mundane and routine tasks was really a work of art. My name is John Ricketts, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Riderly. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries. Six, six months moonlighting. There's nothing on the back end. Who share what it takes to change an industry. I don't exactly know what to do next. took many goes to get right. Who built the teams that have their back. Our company is its people. The teams help each other achieve. Most proud of our team. Keeping scalability top of mind. All that infrastructure was a Yes, pain. we've been fighting it as we grow. Total waste of time. The stories you don't read in the headlines. It's not an easy thing to achieve, Mike. Took it off the shelf and dusted it off and tried to begin. To ride the ups and downs of the startup life. You need to really it's want it. not just about technology. All this and more on Code Story. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today, how John Ricketts created productivity software backed by AI, enabling creators and enterprises to stay aligned and on brand. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open-sourced edge database from the creators of LibSQL. Do you put your edge computing close to your users? You should put your data there, too. Terso makes this easy, utilizing the developer experience of SQLite. Access a free starter plan at terso.tech slash codestory. Terso, welcome to the Data Edge. This episode is brought to you by our friends at MemberStack. MemberStack is the fastest way for you to launch a beautiful Webflow MVP with robust authentication and smooth payments integration. Join companies like Slack and American Airlines in serving millions of members every single day. Get started for free by visiting memberstack.com slash codestory. John Ricketts lives in Knoxville, Tennessee with his wife and kids. He notes that he has had an unconventional route to being a tech startup founder. He has an MBA and a JD, but knew during law school he didn't want to practice. Throughout his career, he has continually fallen in love with building. But outside of tech, he enjoys spending time on the beach, staying physically fit, golfing, and working on his private pilot's license. John observed the maturation of artificial intelligence and the creation of tooling like ChatGPT and generative AI. He envisioned building an application to extend this progression of natural language processing to enable work productivity. This is the creation story of Riderly. So Riderly at its core is a generative AI 
natural language processing software company. And that's a really fancy way of saying that we build software that leverages what we're seeing right now with generative AI applications, except we build them more for enterprise use cases. We build for businesses and we explore really novel use cases in terms of how we can use this new technology at the application layer to really define and then deliver economic value to our customers. And that comes in a variety of ways. So I think most people and, and likely most of your listeners are familiar with ChatGPT at this point. And that's done quite a bit for our product and our recognition and our growth. But the ability to, in natural language, command a software to create something from a minimal input, write a blog, uh, make it 500 words, and to receive content back in a few seconds that is a derivative of what you instructed that tool to do is very unique. And we've never really had access to things like this outside of the sort of academic settings until now. And so Riderly is an extension of this wave of generative AI and natural language at the application layer to say, hey, there's some really deep fundamental technology at the foundation layer of this. Of this. How do we then build on the application layer to make it more accessible to users, to, to allow them to understand how to use it in an effective manner, whether it's building marketing campaigns, building sales email cadences, writing job descriptions. The use cases from a horizontal perspective are really endless. We continue to operate Riderly as our base horizontal product offering. And then from Riderly, we have springboarded into some more vertical markets with some differentiated products there. But really, from our perspective, we have some pretty deep experience with language models and tying them to unique data sets that our end users have access to or want to unlock even more. And then we build, we build bridges to be able to access that data and to automate some functions and to make the, the economic value that they receive out of a tool like this even greater. Let's dive into the MVP then. So that first version of the product you built, how long did it take to build and what sort of, you know, tools did you use to bring it to life? We're kind of aware of the, you know, the chat GPT stuff you mentioned, but maybe touch on a little bit of a broader set of tools. I think that that's a loaded question because in any version of a tool, is it ever really completely built? It's like a house that's never finished. From our perspective, there have been three iterations. First, we were APIing into foundation models and just discovering what we could do from a prompt engineering perspective to create templates. We wanted to productize what we could and do a lot of the legwork on behalf of our users. That product took 10, 10 to 12 weeks, not a very heavy lift. And most of that was around the UI and the UX. From there, the second iteration of our product was really our beta product. And that's where we said, okay, the product works. It has some really interesting use cases, but for us, we're still trying to find what's the product market fit, what's the right direction, what's the problem, if there is a problem to solve. And I think what most people have realized in this market is interesting. Generative AI right now, and largely in its since it's been available via ChatGPT since what November of 2022, so about nine months. The questions around where's the real business or enterprise firepower? Sure, someone could come into Riderly, they could go to ChatGPT, they could go to any number of other peer companies that we have in the space and create a blog, create a marketing cadence, 
And then you get to the editorial. And that's a, a debate and a discussion, certainly for another time. It's, well, who, whose output is better if you have a person write it or if you have a language model write it? At this beta layer, let's make the job that we know people are doing often, let's make it a little easier and a little faster. And then from beta, our third iteration is now our commercial version. And our commercial version is really that extension of the hyper-vertical products that have come off of Writerly. And one of our big ones is called Ecom. It's E-K-O-M. And Ecom is obviously turned towards the e-commerce space. And we help those that are selling digitally, particularly those with large product catalogs, be able to automate a lot of their uh, product descriptions and optimization of existing product descriptions in real time at scale. But it's not just e-com that's making the decision of what to change. We are importing a lot of high fidelity data sources in terms of Google, SEMrush, Ahrefs, SE ranking. And we're, in, we're able to take this data and then instruct the language model on what to optimize on behalf of the customer. And so we can finally turn product data pages into sort of real-time dynamic reflections of what uh, the search market is, is generating. That's really an example of our third iteration of Writerly is, is pairing it with really deep data sets and then automating these processes. This episode is encrypted by Cypherstash. Data breaches are becoming a fact of life. Know why? One of the reasons is because developers lack the right tooling to get the job done i.e. encryption at rest tools are complex and inadequate. The solution? Encryption in use with Cypherstash. Cypherstash uses searchable encryption in use technology, providing continuous and universal protection for sensitive data. With Cypherstash, you can turn your existing database into a vault, utilizing zero-trust key management, SQL native, and with no code. Though encryption is complicated, Cypherstash is easy to use. The tool fully supports SQL via a drop-in driver replacement, supporting the query types you know and love today. And did we mention it's fast? For queries over 100 million records, you can expect additional overhead of less than one millisecond. It's a no-brainer. Get started by reviewing their docs or downloading sample projects in Rails or Node plus SQLize today. Visit cypherstash.com slash codestory and get started protecting your data. This episode is supported by Treble. This day and age, APIs are a fact of life. And as such, product and engineering teams need tooling that is lightweight, real-time, and data-rich to help them ship and maintain APIs faster. That's where Treble comes in. Treble is an all-in-one platform for the entire API lifecycle. The product offers world-class monitoring and observability, providing more than 40 data points for each request, enabling you to understand everything from performance to user behavior. Dashboards help connecting your entire team for lifecycle collaboration. Documentation is automatically generated, saving massive amounts of time for your development team with every new release. And setting up Treble? Super easy and fast. In three simple steps, you can be up and running with their platform, their pricing is designed to support API teams of all sizes. So get started with Treble today and automate your API ops. Did I mention they have a free forever plan? Find out more by visiting treble.com slash codestory. That's T-R-B-L-L-E dot com slash codestory. So you've got the MVP 
it, it's it's working. You mentioned it, it took a certain amount of time and then you progressed from there. What I'm curious about that progression and maturation is how you went about building your roadmap and how you decide, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or to address with Riderly. Roadmaps are a really sensitive topic at, at every company. And we purposefully take in the direction of, we largely leave our roadmap up to our customer and the, and the users that we're serving. We want to build for what's needed in the marketplace. Where we have influence over our roadmap is in prioritization. And with the changing landscape, we have the ability to move things up, to move things down, but largely what appears on our roadmap and the features that we'll be releasing and the new products that we will be releasing are just a reflection of the data that we've captured from our existing user base, conversations with our users, and through analysis that, hey, there's a large enough market to serve here and something that we can build. So I hear you saying we. How did you go about building your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they are the winning horses to join you? You know, building a team is a lot of fun. It's the most important thing you'll ever do in building a company. And so one of the first things that, that I set out to do was to build a core leadership team after we had some early product market fed data and was able through my network to identify a few individuals who were very early on the team. And really, I want to hire the best possible generalist in the early stages that then allows us to go out and identify the specialists that we need to double down in those areas that we're investing in. And so some of the characteristics that I look for are the ability to really think big and to operate with a sense of of urgency, but also with a sense of confidence in that we we can build with the tools that we have at our disposal. We can build quickly, we can build anything we need to, but let's build for for the markets and and what our customers want, what's what's gonna deliver the most value to them. We don't wanna build just to build because we can do that, anyone can. But early on, I was fortunate enough to identify a couple of key members of the leadership team and we make decisions as a cohort. We try to apply as much data and logic to our product roadmap, to our business functions as we can. We move with a sense of urgency, but we're also not afraid to be patient. I think what we've seen over the past 18 months, particularly in language model development, there's a lot of companies at the application layer are, you've got a hundred new companies being announced every week, or seemingly it feels probably closer to the truth. But patience is going to be rewarded. It's impossible to keep up with the rate of iteration. If you're just trying to keep up with those that are competing in your space, that's a fool's errand. And you'll spend all your time just trying to build something only to be somebody else is going to come over the top of you the following week. And so we decided to intentionally, as a group, be patient, let our data tell us where to build and really focus on the, the technical architecture and the ability to build technically without accumulating a lot of debt um, along the way. We built as a team, we've grown as a team, and it's really surrounded by some very strong leaders that have settled into their roles and, and are, are true domain experts. And, and I think culturally inside of Riderly, uh, we, we always tend to defer to the domain expert, but obviously with an acknowledgement and respect for consensus opinion. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open source edge database from the creators of LibSQL, the popular fork of SQLite. If you put your edge computing close to your users, like with Netlify or Vassell edge functions or Cloudflare workers, you should put your data there too in order to maximize performance gains at the edge. 
Turso makes it easy. With a developer experience of SQLite and a distributed database, you can replicate much closer to your users than traditional database offerings in the cloud. Turso's lightweight, easy to use, and free to get started. The team at Turso is offering a generous starter plan specifically for CodeStory listeners. Head over to turso.tech CodeStory and get started today. That's T-U-R-S-O dot tech slash CodeStory. Turso, welcome to the Data Edge. This episode was automatically optimized by Cast. If you run cloud-native software on AWS, Google Cloud, or Azure, you know how out of hand the bill can get. This uncertainty hurts your business, but you can solve it with Cast AI. Cast AI automates cloud costs, performance, and security management for hundreds of companies of all sizes. The platform's customers begin saving immediately and cut an average of over 60%. So before you go and sign a multi-year contract with a cloud provider or lay people off, check out what Cast AI can do for you. To get you saving even faster, Cast AI is offering a free cloud cost audit with a personal consultation. Visit cast.ai slash codestory to get started. Let's flip to scalability then. This will be interesting. Was this built to scale efficiently from day one or with scale in mind? Or are you fighting this as you grow and gain traction? And that could be you know, organizational and it could also be technology. You, you decide. Both Writerly and, and the products that are coming off of Writerly, like Ecom, are, are built to scale from day one. From our perspective, if we're going to play in this market, that number one is a global market that we see rapidly growing over the next five to 10 years, that part of what I mentioned earlier about building without technical debt, we want the ability to scale early from day one. We don't want to have to go back and shift gears and go through potentially a refactor or anything damaging that could slow us down. And it's the mantra of, I'd rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. And, and that was a business decision and a technical decision that we made pretty early on. So as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? Gosh, I, I am very partial and completely biased to our e-com product, which is really the extension of Riderly in the e-commerce sector. The team did an outstanding job architecting for the accommodation of, of, of multiple streams of data that brands and businesses and retailers and manufacturers all deal with on a day-to-day basis, but they operate in, in, in such a siloed manner. And to be able to then take some natural language processing capabilities and apply it to these high-frequency and real-time data sources to then automate a lot of mundane and routine tasks that delivers some really powerful outcomes was really a work of art. And we talk a lot internally because he built meaningful software that's high level what we do, but we have a lot of artists on the team. And so we're a bit of an unconventional software company and that we're headquartered in Nashville. We have, we also have a satellite office in Brooklyn, New York, but we're not Bay Area. And we think that that's more of a, a feature than a bug. And we build with aesthetics and form and function in mind. We see other software platforms out there and our internal conversations, these they all tend to taste like chicken and there's real no differentiation. And so we place a lot of value, not only in, in the function, but the form that's delivered to users. And we consider ourselves a team of artists 
and software happens to be our medium. We've got a fantastic team, deep experience, but a lot of those outside interests, particularly in, in the arts, lend to us getting a lot of really positive feedback from our users on just how refreshing it is to have an application that's a, a better reflection of what's important to them. And it's just not this monochromatic, brutalist software that we're all accustomed to using. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I think one of my favorite mistakes that we look back to, it's not a very large mistake, but we were engaged with one of our providers of our tech stack. And we had these plans to embed their offering into our software. And when you're head down and you're building a lot and you have to delegate from my seat, there was a member of the leadership team who was responsible for cultivating the relationship with this third-party vendor. We had the technical diagram of, of what it was going to do for us. And for one reason or another, the terms and the understanding of what we were getting in relation to what we were paying fell through the cracks. Simple mistake to make, but it was one that was ignored. And so what we ended up with was a, a third-party provider of a piece of our tech stack at a at a contracted rate that was probably a five to six times what we really needed. And that was really a function of us not being not paying attention to the details at that point in time. Now, I say that to say this, when you are head down in your building and you have a lot going on and delegating is a very important thing uh, for any founder or anyone in, in senior leadership company to do. But it was good for us to make that mistake early because as a startup that had not significantly started raising capital at that point in time, it put us in a position of, hey, we're going to need to try to work out terms with this provider because we can't afford it. And this was a really crucial financial mistake and was certainly magnified at the time that it was made relative to the stage of where we were and commercialization. But in hindsight, that the mistake that certainly helped us recalibrate from a leadership team to draw attention to the fact that you can have the most technical people, you can have the, the, the brightest people, but you still, everyone still has to pay attention. And that fell on me as well, because at the end of the day, I'm the one that's responsible for the overall success of the business. And so it was a great lesson for all of us. Fortunately, we were able to work out some friendlier terms from our third-party vendor. You know, what seems like a minor mistake looking back 12 months at the time was a really major thing for our growing company. So, John, this will be fun. What does the future look like for the product and for your team? The rate of iteration is just so fast that what I'm sitting here from my seat going, potentially what's available four quarters from now will likely be available by the end of the year. It's just an exciting space to be building in. We've got some really bright people all across the globe and some really just amazing teams at, at some peer companies that are building meaningful software for sort of the next wave of the tools that we're going to use to get our work done. And it's really exciting to see. I think what we're going to see and, and what typically follows the chasm that exists in new technology is that we've had that sort of leading edge adoption of generative AI. And then what we saw was the natural rebound effect of, okay, there was a lot of hype initially, and now we're going to pull back and, and perhaps we aren't as bullish on it as we were 12 months ago. But if you look back historically, 
and keep that in perspective, what we are going to see now is that we just we've acknowledged that there's some really interesting tools and we're going to keep building from here. I think AI is here to stay. The benefit for outlays risk that will be ultimately mitigated. But I, I think if I sit here, I think it's going to be mass adoption in the workplace through the use of a multitude of new applications. I think the initial fears and hesitancy of AI coming out and replacing jobs is largely unfounded today. I think over time, like all technology, software being one, will ultimately be able to replicate what people have historically done, but that will open up new opportunities for people to redirect their time and energy into new roles. I've got a very bullish case on AI in, in the long term. And the only thing that I can definitively tell you right now and, and have a high degree of confidence in is that it's going to create far more opportunity than I think we're even, we're even imagining or giving it credit for right now. Um, but that's a normal part of the, the introduction, right? We had this extreme amount of hype and almost this AI craze. And now we're regressing back, not quite to the mean, but a little bit ahead of where we were this time last year when no one had heard of ChatGPT. And then we're going to continue to march forward because I know the customers that, that we work with are very excited about the possibilities and those that have embraced early applications of AI can clearly see that where we're going to be 12, 60 months from now, 10 years from now, it can be completely different. And it's just, it's exciting. Well, John, let's switch to you. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or something you look up to and why. For me, I think it started with probably my parents. I had a mother and father that worked very hard uh, during their careers. They were both in education and did that dutifully to the best of their extent and served as something for me, at least in my childhood and even now as a as an adult, having two people in, in my life that were close to me doing that day in and day out. And really, yeah, everyone has their positive and negatives about what they do. But at the end of the day, there is a job, there's a responsibility. And no matter the circumstances, you get up and you go and you do it and you make the best of the situation. And then you wake up the next day and you do it all again. And over time, those micro movements within those 24 hour blocks add up to something very significant. And it's very, it's hard to see that in the day to day, but you're contributing to an overall goal. So I, I think my parents were, were tremendously influential for me. I, I had the opportunity to play sports growing up, obviously continue to follow a number of athletes. I've had been fortunate to, to become friends with a lot of people that have competed at, at very high levels. And so I follow their stories. I, I look to a number of coaches that are great motivators. I enjoy history and have read quite a bit about military leadership, trying to glean what I can from those types of sources. People that are very mission-minded and are able to positively influence and, and lead people around them that ultimately give back and help the people that they you know, are either serving or interfacing with. Because at the end of this, there's a responsibility for positive outcomes with all of us. Whether your platform is a podcast host or your platform is you have a software company, or even if your platform is, is simply being an employee at a meaningful company, as people, we have, I think, a duty and an opportunity to give back as much as we can. And we have to use whatever platform that we cultivate for ourselves to, to pay it forward. 
to either lift someone else up who has an interest in doing this to get someone else started, or at the very least, just be an example to somebody else. You never know who's watching. All right. Well, last question, John. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world and can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? My advice, number one, would be don't lose the enthusiasm. When you lose excitement for what you're building and you lose the enthusiasm for what you're involved in, that's a signal that people can detect. And and it starts with enthusiasm. And it's got to be authentic. You've got to do what you love. And, and when you find something that, that really interests you and, and you can't let it go and you're exploring pathways to commercialization or raising capital, enthusiasm is contagious and it starts and stops there. So I would, I think my number one piece of advice would be, you have to be the cheerleader for your own product. If, if you're not buying it and you're not believing in it, who do you expect will? And I think secondarily to that, you've got to burn the ships. It's really easy for people uh, from a risk tolerance standpoint to want to straddle that line of going all in and, and also keeping a toe in sort of the safe waters. And the best outcomes that I've seen have been people that have gone, they've gone all in. And that's a very personal decision. And I think one that, that you arrive at after some periods of reflection, and then you tend to know whether it's the right time or the right uh, environment to do that. If you've got those two things in mind, you're willing to risk it all, and, and you've got contagious enthusiasm for it, those are things that are going to get you through really hard days. But the good days that you have are amplified even more because you know that you're doing something meaningful and, and you're building something that people value. That's great advice. Well, John, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Riderly. Hey, thank you, Noah. Really enjoyed it. Congratulations on your platform and certainly wish you all the best. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.